All right, good morning, familia. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Hannibal, and I want to welcome you all to Wheaton Bible Church again. Today we continue through our journey in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you were here last week, the sermon today is it's like part two of the sermon that I started last week. Um, so if you missed it, you could always go and check it online. Um, today, though, is I'm, I'm, I'm saying that this is a part two because last week one of the things that we talked about is that Jesus in this section is confronting um, what we're going to call false religion. Right? So part of my argument is that there's a distinction between gospel Christianity, if you will, and religious Christianity. That there's a difference between genuine Christianity and what I call false religion. And that was the whole idea, if you guys remember, behind the fig tree thing. So just in case you forgot, let's read verse 19 again. And it says that as Jesus is, is coming in the road, he saw this fig tree and he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And then he, he cursed it and said, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately it withered, right? Now, what I, what I explained last week, just in case you missed it, is that a, a fig tree is a unique plant. And that Jesus is doing this thing not because he had issues with nature, but because uh, he's going to use that as a metaphor, as a way to illustrate how dangerous it is to have a false religion. See, the fig tree, if you remember, is a plant that shows the leaves first, right? And if it shows the leaves first, then you have to assume that there is fruit in it. Because the fig tree would, have to, would never separate the leaves from this tiny little fruit that will come up with it. So when Jesus approaches this plant, he assumes that if he has leaves, there must be fruit. Now he gets there, there's nothing, and that's what he curses it. And then Jesus is using that as a metaphor and saying, that's what happens when you have a false religion. You have the appearance of fruitfulness because you got leaves, all your religious practices, all the things you do, all that stuff. But in reality, your heart is still far from God. You're still trying to save yourself by yourself. You're still a slave to your sin. You still pretend to be holy and righteous and all this stuff. But your heart is far from me. That was the whole idea behind the fig tree, right? Um, so today then, with that in mind, we want to continue digging into that topic. Because for the second part of that sermon, which is what we're going to talk about today, is Jesus gives us three things that would help us Fight the tendencies we have to become religious people. See, I think that most Christians, not all, not all, but like 99% of the Christians struggle with the temptation to become religious people. That externally we show that everything is okay, but internally we don't or we're not okay. So the three things that the Bible is going to show us that Jesus talks about here is we need faith, we need prayer, and we need to surrender. Faith, prayer, and surrender. Now, before digging into, one of the, into all of this, um, let me just make a, a disclaimer. Because these three topics we have talked about a ton of times. So if you came to church today thinking, oh, I want to hear something new, I'm sorry to disappoint you. 
98% of the things that you will hear this morning, you have heard it already from me, from another pastor, or from someone in the history of the world. There is no new information this morning. Actually, just to give you an idea, if you have been walking with us through the Gospel of Matthew, we already talked about faith 11 times. 11 times already. We have already talked about prayer eight times. And by the, by the end of this journey, we're going to talk about prayer another six times. Now, I don't know if you have experience with this, but I think that part of the reason why Jesus repeats things over and over and over again is because we're like children. How many of you have kids? Question. How many of you, how many of you have given instruction to your kid and the kids le learn it at once? <laughs> Anybody here? Any good parent like that? The problem is not with your kid. The problem is with your parenting skills, I hope you know. Of course not. See, I could tell my daughters, whether well, both of them are here, and I don't mean to embarrass them, but I'm going to. No, if I tell my girls, can you please clean your room? And they will say, yes, puppy, I'll clean the room. What happened half an hour later? Well, they haven't cleaned the room. So what do I do? Hey, can you please clean the room? Yeah, puppy, of course, I'm going to clean the room. Half an hour, can you please clean the room? Can you please clean the room? Can you please clean the room? Can you? Why do they do that? Why do I need to repeat myself? Well, simple. Because people are like children. We are either slow to understand we're slow to learn and apply. See, I tell my daughters to clean the room in Spanish and in English. <laughs> oh, Bobby, you have an accent. That's all right. Let's do it in Spanish. <laughs> See, we either have a hard time. Part of the reason why Jesus repeats things so many different times is because we are either slow to understand or slow to apply. So let's talk about faith. All right? This is one of the things that we need in order for us to uh, fight false religion. So Jesus finds this fig tree. He curses the fig tree. And the, the disciples are amazed by this. Look at what it says in verse 20. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. And they asked the question, how... Did the fig tree wither so quickly? Which, in the question alone, it tells you that the disciples struggle just as much as you and I struggle. Because the normal question would be, why? Like, the normal question, the proper question, the most uh, simple question would have been is, why did you why did you curse this tree? But that's not what they ask. They ask, how did you do that? I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but questions reveals a lot about your heart. If you want to know what's in your heart, look at what comes out of your mouth. That's what the Bible says. There is no, oops, my mistake. No, 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 no. 
that stuff always comes from your heart. So this question is saying something about how the disciples see Jesus and see themselves. So this is what I think the disciples is going through, are going through and they're struggling. They're not so much interested, interest, yeah, interested at this moment in, in thinking about Jesus as the center of the universe and being Jesus as the almighty, powerful God. I think that they believe that already. But I think that the struggle is that they, they want the same power that Jesus has. That's why the question is, how did you do that? See, behind the question, there's a heart that is so self-centered and wants to be so self-reliant that what they're asking is, how can I have the power you have? So you have to ask the question. Why is it that these people are asking this question? Why is it that they want this power? Well, I think that the simple answer is this. Because they have faith in Jesus and at the same time, faith in themselves. They trust the power of Jesus, but at the same time, they want that power. And I want to make the argument that that is one of the First indicatives that you're struggling with false religion. When you think that you can worship God and yourself at the same time. When you think that we can have faith in God and faith in ourselves at the same time. When we think that we can trust in God's power and our power at the same time. And I'm here to argue that I think that what Jesus is doing here, is about to do here, is to say that that is a confusing faith. That is a faith that is not working properly. That is simply impossible for anybody to exercise the same quality of faith in God and in ourselves at the same time. Where do I get that from? Verse 21. Look at how Jesus replies. Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, stop there for a second, because I thought that when you have faith, that automatically believes that we don't doubt. But that's not what Jesus says. If you have faith and you do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done if you believe, right at the beginning of verse 22. Now, I want you to then notice that Jesus is making a distinction between just believing and not down, doubting. Meaning that there's a distinction between believing and truly trusting God. Because it is possible for you to believe in God, to believe that he exists, to believe that he's powerful, to believe that he's for you, to believe all of these things. But functionally... Don't trust him as much. I think that it is possible for you to believe in God cognitively and not with your affections. I think that it's really easy for us to say that we believe. Satan believes and not really trust God with your life. I think that this is part of the reason why the disciples are so self-centered. I think that this is part of the reason why they ask the question. 
Because they want to have them both. They want to have faith in Jesus and also faith in themselves. This is the interesting thing here. That the word doubt is where I get the concept of trust. And this is the reason why the New Testament, every time when it talks about faith and belief, is always a synonym of trust. Because it's not just about believing with your head. This is the thing. All the stuff that we just sung about, you can actually believe that and at the same time not trust God with all your heart. It's a confusing faith. It's a self-centered faith. It's a self-reliant faith. I wonder if that's the reason why the New Testament talks about faith and believing so much. I think that God knows that one of our primary issues is not that we don't believe. It's that we don't trust See, when I was doing my little research here in the Bible, I realized that the word faith in the New Testament appears 243 times. Why would Jesus repeat the same? Why would, would the New Testament repeat the word faith so many times? And then the word believe in the New Testament appears 241 times. Why would the New Testament repeat the word believe so many different times? Is it because we're slow to believe? Or maybe, maybe, just maybe, because we are slow to trust. Church, this is the reason why many of us struggle with self-centeredness and self-sufficiency. And many struggle with false religion. Because it is possible to claim to believe in God and not trust Him. Because it is possible to want God to be the universe, center of the universe and at the same time, us wanting to be the center of the universe. You know how I know that? Just pay attention to the little things we say. To the little behaviors we do. The things that we allow that actually it's like kind of a window into your heart. See, I think that when kids crave for attention is because they, since they're babies, they're struggling, struggling with self-centeredness. Right? Look at this guy. He's struggling. Obviously, his family. <laughs> now, this is what it is. A baby is born, right? And the baby is not thinking about you at all. I've used that example before. The baby is not thinking, oh, my parents are tired. No, they're not thinking, oh, I'm going to give him like four hours to sleep. No, no, no. The baby does not care. He cries all night long because he is the center of the universe. That's how we are born. Isn't that the reason why many of us, we, we say, well, we don't want recognition, but we do. Oh, I don't want anybody to notice me, but please don't ignore me. Isn't that the reason why we say, well, I'm here to serve you, but if I serve you and you don't respond well in my heart, I'm like, you're such an ungrateful person. Isn't that the reason why the concept of low self-esteem is so popular today? You want to know why low self-esteem is? When you cannot bear the idea that you are not the center of the universe. 
So what else secular people would say? Well, no, talk to yourself. Love yourself. You are amazing. You are beautiful. You are perfect. What happens? You believe that. You go into the world. People still ignore you, and you're still dealing with low self-esteem because the problem is not low self-esteem. High self-esteem is the problem. I think that this is the reason why in modern-day culture, people talk about self-care so much. Listen, I believe in self-care. I think that you got to take care of your health. I think that you got to take care of your emotional life. I think you got to take care of your physical life. And I think you got to take care of your spiritual life. No issues there. But it's interesting that cultural critics, when they talk about this, one of them, um, I believe her name is Tara, uh, Tara Isabella Burton. She's written a writer. She's written a bunch of stuff about this. And she says that as she looks at our culture, people talk about self-care so much, not just because they need to be healthy, but because they want to believe that they are in the center of this world. How does she know that? Because we are willing to sacrifice self-care at the expense of God and others. Can you, can you imagine a mother saying to the baby, I'm sorry, baby, I can't help you right now. Self-care time. <laughs> See, this is the struggle with the disciples. They think that they can believe in God and believe in themselves just as much. They think that Jesus is the center of the universe and they are the center universe of the universe just as much. They want to trust in Jesus, but they want to trust in themselves just as much. They believe in the power of Jesus, but they want to have that power just as much. And at the end of the day, that's confusing faith. And at the end of the day, that is what turns us into religious people. Not gospel-centered people. Because it's simply impossible for us to place our trust in God and in us at the same time. Simply impossible. So, for example, you see this in the way how people talk about faith and healing faith. So, someone is sick, and you pray for the person, and the person doesn't get healed, and then someone says, you lack faith. You know what's the problem with that statement? That the power is in us, not in God. God is the one that elevates people. God is the one that heals. God is the one that performs miracles. God is the one that takes the glory. You cannot have God's glory and your glory at the same time. It's either his glory or your glory. But as Christians, only his. Only his. His power. His presence. His presence, him, him alone. So we need faith to be able to fight our false religious behavior. But we also need prayer. So this point number two. So in the middle of all of this, the disciples ask this question. Jesus answers the questions by saying, well, if you have belief, if you, if you believe and you don't doubt, if you believe and, and trust me, you could do the same thing. But then he adds this in verse 22. If you believe, Jesus says, you will receive whatever you ask 
you ask for in prayer. Now, there's two things that we're going to learn just in that verse about prayer. Number one is that part of the reason why the Lord talks about prayer here is because if we really want to grow in learning how to trust God, we must learn to pray. Because we pray in order to trust. Actually, make it, let me make it even more clear. We pray because we still struggle with trusting. Why would I say that? See, the, the, the logic of it is super simple. If we believe that God is who he, he says he is, if we believe that God is powerful, if we believe that God performs miracles, if we believe all of that stuff about God, and we don't pray, doesn't that tell you that you don't believe in that God as much? If you truly believe it, you pray. Now, the reason why I'm saying this is because prayer continues to be one, one major struggle in the life of a lot of, a struggle in the life of a, lot, of a lot of believers. If I were to do a little assessment, how is your prayer life right now? I guarantee you that every single one of us somehow will be like, yeah, not so good. And I want you to see that part of the reason why we struggle with, with prayer is precisely because we struggle with the same things that the disciples struggle with. See, if we, were, if we would truly believe that God is powerful, if we truly believe that he's trustworthy, if we truly trust in him, we would pray more and we would do much less. So this is family. Amen? Question. How many of you guys find it easier to try to fix a problem before praying. Can you raise your hand? All right, I want you to look around just really quick. Now, this doesn't excuse it, but it explains our situation here. It tells you that part of the reason why we don't pray more is because we struggle with trust. Therefore, the solution to trust more is to pray more, even when you don't feel like praying. This is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter, Thessalonians chapter 5, pray continually. Don't pray only when you want to. Don't pray only when you feel like it. Don't pray when you feel religious. Pray continually. Fight because you need to trust God. This is the same reason why Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, always pray and do not give up. Why does Jesus say that? Because the tendency... Is to want to give up. Because the tendency will be for us to try to fix our problems. Because the tendency is to think that we can do it by ourselves. Is to think that we have the power to do things. But Jesus says, no, pray. Pray and pray. And if you don't want to pray, pray more until you want to pray. Because that will be the only way we learn to trust God. No prayer, no trust, therefore no faith. Second thing that we learn about prayer is that it's not just about praying. It's about praying the right prayers. There's a distinction between praying, like religious people pray, and praying for the right things. 
There's a theologian that I was reading this week. His name is uh, J. Gary Miller. He's an um, Australian theologian, and he says this. Prayer is the act of asking God to do what he has already promised to do. It is actually foolish to pray for things that he has not said or promised that he will do. This is why 1 John chapter 5 says, pray according to his will. So I want to give you a, a, a brief example of what that looks like. Because this is the thing. If we believe in God, that means that we must believe what he says. Amen? And if we believe what he says, then we believe in accordance to his heart and his promises. Those are the only promises. Those are the, those are the only uh, prayers he answers. The only prayers he answers are the prayers that are in alignment with his heart and his promises. That's it. That's why, well, I'm not even going to go there because I'm going to offend people. Let me just give you some examples here. All right? Matthew chapter 6. This is the Lord's prayer. Let me walk you through it really quick. So right at the beginning of that prayer, Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray. And at the beginning of the prayer, he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right? Everyone, how many of you guys know that? How many of you guys never heard of that prayer? So we could pray for you right now. <laughs> the word glory, as you have probably heard about that, that means God's glory and honor. God's splendor and weight. Basically, the prayer is, may your, name, may, may your name be glorified, exalted. May people find you supreme and beautiful and enough. That's the prayer. If that's the prayer, then I shouldn't pray for my glory. Oh, Lord, please help the church. They all appreciate me more. If they would only understand how much I suffer for them. Oh, please, Lord, that they may see my value and dignity and respect me for who I am. That might be a decent prayer, but that's not what Jesus says. We pray for his name to be exalted, for his glory to be displayed. This is, a, this is part of the reason why I have a huge issue with these guys that have grow, uh, grown up in Christianity and then become celebrities. And right before they go into the concert, they gather and hold hands and they all pray for the glory of God to be displayed. As they go out there half naked and singing some stupid things. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not his glory. That's your glory. So maybe, 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 just maybe, you got to be careful when you pray about your glory. God only answers the prayers that are in alignment to his heart and his promises. Second part of that prayer, your kingdom come, you will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's simple for me. When I think about how heaven looks like, if heaven is a place of peace, joy, harmony, dignity, equality, fellowship, those are the things I pray for. I don't need to make politically correct prayers. If racism is not in heaven, I pray against racism. If classism is not in heaven, I pray against classism. Whatever heaven looks like, that's what I pray here. Those are the only prayers that are in alignment to God's heart and God's promises. 
Give us today our daily bread. And this is about to get super personal. Because what Jesus says is that we pray for our needs, not perceived needs. That we pray for the Lord to give us what we truly need. Not the extra stuff, not the extra vacation, not the extra nothing, your needs. Now, if the Lord gives you extra, praise God, man, share it. He gave you extra for you to share it, but our prayer is that he gives us what we truly need. That's a hard prayer to make on this side of the world when we have so much. He says, forgive our debts as we also forgive our debtors. So obviously, part of our prayer is for us to repent and ask the Lord to forgive us for our sins. But it's interesting that, that the text says, as we also forgive other people. So I was thinking about this. I think that the Lord has given me an amazing wife. Like really, an amazing wife. But every now and then, we do have disagreements. Every now and then, usually her fault. But <laughs> she's over here, so I'm not saying anything in secret. The temptation for Hannibal would be to say, Lord, could you please change my wife? I mean, our, our marriage will be perfect, flawless, if Heidi does everything I want her to do. <laughs> but she's a human being that also has her own opinions. And instead of me asking time with the Lord saying, please, Lord, change her, how about if my prayer is, if she has sinned against me, help me to forgive her. That's a prayer. If she prays, don't just ha change Hannibal. You should pray for that stuff. But a more important prayer is, help me forgive Hannibal because you do know that I need that a lot. You see what I mean? That's praying according to God's heart and praying according to his promises. The text says, lead us not into temptation and deliver me from the evil one. And I love that one as well because it says that I want the Lord, I'm asking the Lord to protect, him, to protect me from the things outside of me, but also to protect me from the things inside of me because you are only tempted by the things that you already have inside. If you don't have it inside, you cannot be tempted. See, Effective prayer, the, the prayer that leads us to learn how to trust God is the prayer that is in alignment to his heart and his promises. After that, you can pray for whatever you want. But there is no guarantee that the Lord is going to answer those prayers. We need faith. We need prayer. And third, we need to surrender. Now, it seems like if the text is changing the narrative, but the text says that Jesus goes back into the temple, to the temple, uh, to the court area, temple courts area again, and he starts to teach people there. And the religious leaders are looking at Jesus doing this thing, and look at what they say in verse 23. The chief priests and the elders of the people came to him, and they asked the question, by, why by, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? Now, obviously... They're trying to undermine Jesus. But it's important for you to notice that they're actually doing their homework. 
Their motive is wrong, but they're actually doing their homework. Because as religious leaders, they did have the responsibility to protect who would teach in a temple. Similar to what the elders would do in church today. Are elders supposed to protect the doctrine of the church? So they're doing their job. That's not the problem. The problem, though, is that they're trying to find something so they can undermine Jesus publicly. Because if Jesus were to say, well, the authority comes from God the Father, they could say, you know what? We are the religious leaders here. We're supposed to protect the temple. We don't agree with you. Therefore, you're phony. That's what they're trying to do. Now, you have to remember, Jesus does this kind of stuff brilliantly all the time. Jesus has the ability to discern people's thoughts, which is crazy. Can you imagine if we had Jesus here with us in front of us right now? He knows what's inside their heart. So, instead of answering the question, they, he's going to ask a question before he answers their question. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to answer your question if you answer mine first. Now, look at what he's going to do. Verse 25. He asked about John the Baptist. And he says, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or human origin? Then the, the religious leaders in the second part of verse 25 says that they discussed it among themselves and said, mm, if we say from heaven, he will ask them, why didn't you believe him? Now, stop that there for a second, because they know that if they say that John the Baptist was a prophet that came, that was assigned by God, and John the Baptist said that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, if they say that, then Jesus will come back and say, if he's a true prophet and he comes from God, then why did you believe him? It's kind of a trick question. These guys are not idiots. They're saying, well, we're not going to answer that. The answer is not going to work. So then they go to verse 26. And they say, if we say of human origin, then we are afraid of the people. For they all hold that John was a prophet. So they know that if they say that, that John was not a true prophet, that it was just a hippie living in the wilderness, they know that the rest of the people will go against them. So they do the most natural thing they could do. Yeah, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, I don't know either. That was brilliant. Now, you got to ask the question, why is, it that Jesus did, why is it that Jesus didn't want to answer the question? Listen up, church. Because Jesus knew that at the end of the day, it didn't matter if they had the right answer. They didn't want to surrender their lives to him. That's the thing with when you only think about biblical information and you don't apply faith. Because it doesn't matter if you have all the facts and all your questions are answered. And you find all the details. And you believe everything in the Bible. If you don't want to surrender to the will of God, you won't surrender. And this is where these three concepts come together. See, the only way we truly believe in God and trust in Him is when we choose to surrender first. See, the only way we're going to pray in order to trust 
is when we choose to surrender first. See, the only way we're going to pray, trusting in alignment to his heart and promises, is when we choose to surrender first. Part of the reason why people struggle with false religion is because they really want to surrender only some spheres of their life and not their entire life. But if Jesus is Lord, church, listen up. If Jesus is Lord, there's not one thing that you can say to God, oh, I can't submit that one to you. You just can't. He's not your Lord. He's not your Savior. At least not yet. So let me ask you something. If that is you and that you're struggling with that, why wouldn't you surrender everything to him? Why would you resist this beautiful, amazing, powerful God? Why wouldn't you trust him if he surrendered everything for you? Why wouldn't you surrender to him if he surrendered the harmony of the Trinity to become a tiny, needy human being? To come and live in this broken world, to be rejected by the very people he loved. Why wouldn't you surrender to him? If he surrendered his will for you, when he's about to go to the cross and he doesn't want, and he feels like if he doesn't need to go to the, doesn't want to go to the cross. But he surrendered his will when he says to the Father, not my will, but your will. Why wouldn't you surrender to him when, even though he was, when he was nailed to the cross? He forgave you even though when he says, please forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Why wouldn't you surrender yourself to him when he was willing to experience for a fragment of time complete isolation and abandonment? Why have you forsaken me? Why wouldn't you surrender your life to him? If he was willing to exchange glory for shame, peace for pain, love for rejection, presence for loneliness, life for death. Why wouldn't we trust him? See, from that perspective, it doesn't make any sense. That we don't trust him. He has given you all the reasons in the world why he's trustworthy. May the Lord grant us the ability and the gift to trust him 100%. Him and him alone. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I, I think that every single one of us that is here struggle every now and then with this confusing faith. In which we really want to trust you, but we trust ourselves way too much. 
in which we really want to trust your power, but we also trust ourselves way too much. Lord, and this is part of the reason why we struggle with our prayer. And it is because we struggle in our prayer that we're still growing in this trusting thing. So I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, by the power of your spirit, Lord, that you allow us to learn to trust you more and more. That you help us grow in our prayer life so we learn to trust you more and more. That you teach us how to pray in alignment to your heart and your promises so we learn to trust you more and more. But with that, Lord, we also pray that you help us surrender our will to you. Because you first surrender your will for our sake. Lord, when I think about, about that, Jesus did not surrender his will. Or Jesus did not surrender his will because he had to. He surrendered his will because he wanted to. Because he saw us. He saw our struggle. He saw our leaves, and he did not want condemnation for us. Help us see and believe. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...